Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This week, Mike and Jude sit down with Pete Connolly, a retired officer in the Australian Defense Force and adjunct fellow at CSIS, to discuss Chinese statecraft in the Pacific Islands and what China's involvement in the region means for the U.S. and its allies and partners. Hi, I'm Mike Green. I'm joined by my friend and co-host Jude Blanchett. Welcome back to the Asia Chessboard. We're going to look at a part of the region that was once at the center of the most violent war America has known in that part of the world, the Pacific War, and that region is the Pacific Islands. And we're going to be joined by one of Australia's smartest, but also most tactically informed observers of the region, Colonel Pete Connolly, who joins us in Canberra. I'm in Sydney. Jude is in Washington. Pete, welcome. Delighted you could join us. Thanks very much, Mike. It's great to be here. So we're going to get into the geopolitics of the Pacific, and in particular, your research and forthcoming PhD from Australian National University on China's strategy and how they deliver on that strategy in the region. We'll talk a little bit about why it matters, how it looks in the region, what the US, Australia, New Zealand, others are doing. But we always start with with you. You're a colonel retired in the Australian Army. That's not the usual career path to doing a PhD on on the Pacific Islands politics at ANU. What, what happened? First of all, how'd you get into the army and how'd you get into this topic? Yeah, well, you're right that it's not normal, but maybe that's going to change, Mike. But yeah, I joined the army back in 1987 and went through, did, a, did an arts degree and, and did honours on Australia and Indonesia and became an infantry officer. And I had some great experiences throughout my career, particularly being a platoon commander in Somalia, company commander in Timor-Leste, and then a number of tours of Afghanistan, including as a, a battalion or battle group commander. But all of those experiences collectively were largely away from what we call our near region. There was a period right in the middle where I spent a lot of time in the Pacific, but largely I've been far away. And I did have a real desire to be far more engaged with the countries closest to me. And so after a posting in Washington, where I was seconded to the joint staff to work once again on Afghanistan, I came back to Australia and decided to start this PhD to just try to understand what China's interests were in a sub-region of the Pacific called Melanesia. And that's particularly the independent states of Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands, Fiji and Vanuatu. So understanding that from a Chinese perspective, but also understanding it from the perspective of the people in those countries, both at the national level and the grassroots level. Were you an uh, army cadet when you were uh, in school? <laughs> no, I was not. Ah, okay, I only ask because my son, who's American, of course, is now in the Scots College Army Cadets, and he's chosen uh, Pioneer Corps. But it's made him want to join the Navy. All right. <laughs> All the marching and dirt and stuff isn't isn't as fun. Um, I'm sure in we some can ways, fix that, he, Mike. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I have. To, I come from a family of Marines, Coast Guard, and Navy. It'll be a hard fix. But um, 
your career actually in some ways is a microcosm of what's happened to the strategic debate in Australia and in the US-Australia alliance. Because this was an alliance that for much of its history was focused on the Middle East. And careers like yours were built in our alliance around the Gulf War, OEF, OIF, combat in Afghanistan. But now the big contest is in the Asia Pacific, the Indo-Pacific, and the, in some ways, unexpected focal point is becoming now the Pacific Islands and especially Melanesia. Because you you mentioned Solomon's Vanuatu. Vanuatu is where the Chinese were trying to build a sub base. Solomon Islands now huge focus. Your career is shifting back to a place you know, but really the new geopolitical center of competition for Australia and and, and a real focus for the U.S. Australia Alliance. Not a region that most Americans think about very much, despite the storied history of the Marine Corps and the Army in the very places you're talking about in World War II. So maybe you can help our listeners understand why geopolitically we in the U.S. and Australia should care so much about Melanesia and China's strategy there. Sure, Mike. I guess you mentioned a few examples of what I refer to as potential dual-use facilities, and we'll come back to those later. Happy to unpack what that means and, and how those are done. But in terms of the geopolitical significance of the Pacific Islands, clearly between Australia and the US as allies, it's always been very important to both of us to remain connected and to have safe passage between the two, but more importantly, to have the freedom to navigate and to trade throughout the Indo-Pacific has always been of fundamental importance to both countries. And so that's also become the case for China, but there has become a competition that's developed in the last two decades for influence in that area. I just have to add though, that from an Australian perspective, it's where we live. And the worst thing we can ever do is have a focus on the Pacific Islands that's purely geopolitical because at the same time, we have to have a meaningful relationship with our immediate neighbours. And they often get the impression that we or the US are only interested for geopolitical reasons. And that is a problem in itself. That, that undermines our relationships. So I guess it's an important thing to remember that there is a geopolitical significance to both countries but there's also a need for support from the Pacific Islands and there's an expectation of a close relationship with vested interest in each other's interests. And so I, I guess I'm getting to there's more than just the geopolitics. And having got to know a lot of Pacific Islanders through the research that I've done, spent a lot of time on the ground talking to them and also on the ground talking to Chinese in those countries, uh, it really gives me a slightly different perspective on how to approach those issues. Pete, of course you're right, but nonetheless, this is a geopolitics podcast. So we're going to pin you down and make you talk geopolitics now for the next you know, 20, 20 odd minutes. I wonder if I can ask you, as, as we still do some ground clearance questions to level set here for listeners, the Pacific Islands in China, of course, doesn't didn't just start in April of this year or the spring of this year, but this is really when... I think it came to the attention of policymakers in the United States 
But a lot of other countries around the world saw China's activities in the Pacific Islands. I wonder if you can describe a bit of why we're talking about it this year, and and if you can embed that in a, in a question of where the Pacific Islands sits in Chinese strategy. Sure. How has China been thinking about the region, and why was this year the year we saw that this really big push from Beijing? Yeah, that's a, a really good question, Jude. I guess the background to the answer to this is that it appears that China has been considering the geopolitical value and the geostrategic value of this region and this sub-region specifically of, of Melanesia for a very long time. But that consideration, I think, has been nicely covered by global narratives such as China's peaceful rise. And that has really been consumed by all of us at different times in varying degrees. Meanwhile, there's been debates taking place in China, both within academia and within the officials on what they do next in their grand strategy. And those debates have taken place over two decades. And that's often not widely understood. I think a a fair bit of the detail behind that has really been unpacked by Rush Doshi's most recent book, The Long Game, which I, I found particularly useful when it came out about a year before I finished my dissertation. But in amongst the debates, there's been debates on China's grand strategy needing to become more assertive, and at what point did it change that trajectory? There's been debates on, I guess a subcomponent of that has been the idea of basing. And in amongst these discussions, two of the names that come up for me from very early in the decade, uh, Major General Liu Yazhou, who wrote The Grand National Strategy, a very interesting article in 2001, and also a book on China's grand strategy by Yi Zicheng, which was from about three years later. And we've eventually seen the translations of these significantly later. But one of the things that uh, Liu Zhaozhou talked about was firstly, he had a, had a section that was just called Go West, which I think is one of the fundamental ideas behind what we now call the Belt and Road Initiative. But he also had another section, quite interestingly at the end, that I've never really seen quoted anywhere, that talks about getting involved in what he described as the unstable arc of islands that extends to the Solomon Islands. He actually specifically calls out the Solomon Islands. And to get involved in their politics, and to, he uses the words divide and conquer, or words to that effect. So interesting that there was thoughts on Chinese grand strategy from 21 years ago that now point to what's just happened this year. That doesn't mean that the entire Chinese establishment was planning on this for all that time, but it does mean someone was thinking about it, and there's probably been a development of that thought over the two decades in between. I think as as we moved into the new era with Xi Jinping's changes that became quite visible in Chinese grand strategy and foreign policy, a number of people started to think it all changed because of the individual. But there has been a number of people have pointed out that the trajectory of China's grand strategy really did start to change significantly under Hu Jintao around 2009. And 
then as we move into the new era, the creation of what became known as the Belt and Road Initiative, but was called the One Belt, One Road in Mandarin and still is, there's been a gradual realisation of what the Belt and Road represents and what it's really about. It started off fitting in very neatly with the narrative of China's peaceful rise, and it was seen very much as a win-win economic proposition that was particularly attractive to developing nations who needed cheap infrastructure and the finance for that cheap infrastructure. But as time has gone on, we've come to see that there's more to the Belt and Road than that. And it's that introduction of the Belt and Road to this specific sub-region of Melanesia that I see as the conduit for the enhancement of Chinese statecraft in those countries I mentioned earlier. And I've seen that happen pretty much in the last five years, starting in 2017, starting very much with the enhancement of political statecraft, but then moving on to significant enhancement of economic statecraft as part of the Belt and Road. And then more recently, we have seen security statecraft come to the fore. And that's really where Solomon Islands comes in. And, and Pete, can you unpack a bit more the specific, concrete, strategic outcomes Beijing is looking to derive from enhanced relations with the Pacific Islands? We've mentioned basing. Can you linger a bit on the military components of what strategic gains in Pacific Islands would be, but also go beyond that? If we were sitting in Zhongnanhai in you know January of this year, and we're thinking about where we're going to use limited uh, scarce strategic uh, resources, why are we pushing into the Pacific Islands? Is this about denying the US, Australia, and, and other allies and partners strategic gains, or, or, or is China trying to derive its own asset side of the balance sheet in rearranging the strategic map in the Indo-Pacific? Okay. <laughs> so just on the Belt and Road, I do describe it as a geoeconomic strategy, and it's largely used, as I described before, that economic incentive to achieve both geopolitical and geostrategic ends. And it's done that quite successfully. The Belt and Road then becomes a framework for the delivery of statecraft and its coordination and integration on the ground, as well as a narrative which helps to, as I said before, attract developing nations, but also helps to explain and justify this increase in statecraft on the ground. So that requires three different broad areas of statecraft to advance and deliver China's grand strategy in Melanesia. The first I refer to is political statecraft, and I use that term to describe a combination of diplomacy, propaganda, and united front work, which I think has become almost very difficult to discern between since 2012. And it's certainly demonstrated an increase in capability and resourcing, as well as a change in behaviour in Melanesia since 2017, which is particularly shown by the enhancement of the capacity of ambassadors on the ground. In terms of economic statecraft, that is the one that's most widely understood because of the Belt and Road. But I note that in talking to Chinese officials 
and Chinese business people on the ground in Melanesia, uh, it's become quite clear to me that what China views as a Belt and Road Initiative project just has to be built by a Chinese company, most likely a state-owned enterprise. It does not mean it has to be paid for by that company or by that country, and it does not mean uh, it has any other connection with China. And because of that, we're seeing on the ground in Melanesia, particularly in Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands and Vanuatu, the increasing delivery of what the locals see as Belt and Road projects for the benefit of their country being paid for not by China, but being attributed to China. And I'm happy to go into that more if, if you wish, but I think it's, a, it's an important part of their achievement of geopolitical influence, increasingly at the expense of others. And moving to the security statecraft side of the house, there's been a very slow start to that. And I think that was a deliberate cautiousness from China's perspective because of a knowledge that if you want to have a base somewhere, uh, you have to have the host nation willing to receive it. And that is a fundamental issue with the idea of basing. And that's why China does not use that concept. So just to, to take this back a little bit, an internal debate started within China with Hu Jintao's proposition of the Malacca Dilemma in 2004. And this took place right up to 2012 when the, uh, the National Congress directed that the steady promotion and construction of overseas bases in the Indian and Pacific Oceans. And as a result of that direction, all the different arms of Chinese statecraft have had to look at how to make this work. From a military perspective, the key concept came from Rear Admiral Yin Zhou, who proposed in 2010 the use of dual-use facilities. Now, in talking about dual-use facilities, he was understanding that China needed assistance in projecting its power, but it needed to do it with the lowest possible profile. So a dual-use facility, in my view, is a port and or airfield established by a Chinese company that's capable of sustaining and projecting a military contingent for low-intensity operations. It could be used for certain strategic tasks in the event of conflict or become a more significant military base in the future, but is ostensibly a commercial facility in its initial state. And I believe it's this concept that has been used specifically in Melanesia. And I've investigated roughly 14 examples of what I call potential dual-use facilities within those four countries over the space of eight years. And I'd put it to you that none of them can be easily identified as a base. And that brings me to the conclusion with what we've seen in the Solomon Islands this year, uh, we've seen a real jump at opportunity uh, because of the riots that happened at the end of last year in November in Honiara and the way that Chinese interests became associated with those riots, not necessarily caused directly by the riots, but certainly tangled up in them. <clears throat> this provided an opportunity 
uh, for the development of Chinese statecraft and they have taken it. And in the signing of the China Solomon Islands Security Agreement, um, I would just say the objective is not bases per se. It's not about the bases, it's about the access. And when I'm talking about access, it's the permission to bring military force into that country, which the leaked draft document of that security framework absolutely permits. Uh, they don't need to talk about, and you'll let us establish a base, because if there's dual-use facilities there, then that's their form of basing, albeit undeclared. So it's the access that I think is the objective. I think they have achieved that for now in Solomon Islands. As one Solomon Islander said to me eight months before that happened, he predicted uh, such a development was going to happen. And, uh, and his, the, the great quote that he had was, um, China finally finds a conduit into the Pacific through the Solomon Islands. And, uh, and I think that's the best description of what those security agreements from April this year have achieved. So, Pete, it's fascinating, a little bit menacing, and I'm glad you're putting a spotlight on it. In some ways, I'm listening to this Chinese strategy and how it's evolved, and I'm thinking back on the last two books I wrote. First one was on U.S. grand strategy, and in the 1880s, U.S. naval officers were talking the same way. The State Department, Washington, would not let them, let them set up bases, so, so in the Pacific Islands, they were looking for access. Or the Japanese. When the Japanese emerged, even before the major restoration, the Japanese nascent naval thinkers were saying, we need to expand our power into the South Seas, as they called it. So that power abhors vacuums and the Pacific Islands, large area, low population, uneven governance, it attracts rising powers. <laughs> Japan, the US, even Germany at one point in the 19th century. So that's kind of an old story that China is now fitting into. On the other hand, you talked about 2009. 2009, as, as I recall, was important because I think, Jude, that's when Hu Jintao gave his favorite speech about the PLA Navy has to defend not only ceilings, but also interests, which is a much more expansive definition of their mission. But that's also when, in the Academy of Military Science, they were working quietly on what they called the near-sea strategy, the idea of contesting, denying, and eventually dominating the first island chain, eventually the second island chain. It makes sense that in the initial stages, the focus would be on access. But you dropped the hint that it could have more serious implications in, a, in wartime or in a contingency. And to me, it's very logical, flowing from the near sea doctrine and China's strategy since the 90s, that they would want to push the US, Australia, and Japan back away from Taiwan, the East China Sea and the South China Sea, as far as possible. And if there's a military presence in the Pacific Islands, the Royal Australian Navy, the RAF can't ignore it. The comeback to that is, well, these are easily destroyed targets, but they're not because they're in sovereign countries and in phase one of a conflict, when you're not shooting yet, it forces Australia or the US to pull back, to focus on their own near abroad. It, it, is that military warfighting dimension of the strategy evident to you, or is it just hypothetical at this stage? Because it sure, when you look at this as a you know, as a warfighting scenario, which the PLA does, it has definite utility for them. The way I conceptualize 
why would the PLA be trying to establish dual-use facilities in the way that I just described before and why it would in a, a sub-region like Melanesia? I see, that, see it in kind of two phases. There's the current state of play that we're in, which is a, it's a phase of competition. And within that phase, the objective for the PLA is to be able to conduct low-intensity operations, as we used to call them. But ultimately, it, the, what China needs is the ability to project force and to be able to, as part of that, grow its influence. And it will do it for reasons like humanitarian assistance. It will do it for reasons like evacuation operations where they're required. And it's gradually growing the acceptance that it will as it has clearly grown the capability to do so over the preceding 15 years uh, since the, the policy of overseas citizen protection first developed. So that's, that's the first point, is one that's it's very rational, it's tangible, it's, it's in some ways quite attractive to the host nations in that they, they want assistance from everyone. Why shouldn't they? It makes sense. So that's, that's the current state of play. Then I see a, a future phase, as you alluded to, and that's the possibility of warfare. And that doesn't presuppose that anyone wants it, but it's accepting that as competition increases and the temperature rises, it's possible that it can lead to warfare at some time, at some stage. And that in that phase and that situation, these locations, these dual-use facilities, can be used in other ways. And that might not be, once again, as we traditionally see a base, as something that's well defended, as something you have to hang on to. It could be something that's there to be sacrificed. It could be something that no one knows is there until it acts. And in doing that act, it could place another force at risk. It could deter it could interdict, it could contribute to a, a perception of containment, for instance, between two allies. Um, so there's a number of ways that locations can be used other than what we traditionally think of as a base. And, uh, and I think it's important to consider that they're probably not ever going to become a declared base and they might not be seeking a declared base like they have in Djibouti. Uh, but nonetheless, there is these two different levels of, of military utility to the concept of dual-use facilities. So Jude was referencing earlier the intense efforts by State Council Wang Yi and the, and, the, and the Chinese side to establish the security agreement and these different commitments out of the, out of the Melanesian states. And uh, that was a real alarm bell. But I, I think in Australia, the alarm bell came about five years ago when Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, who throughout his career was not a China hawk, quite the opposite, came out publicly and said he was alarmed at China's effort to build a submarine base in Vanuatu. So Australia's fully alert to this. I think the, the Biden administration is. The Trump administration appointed the first Pacific Islands director in the NSC ever because they were so concerned. And Japan and New Zealand and others Tell us a little bit about the other powers. You know, in some ways, Australia's connection is much older, much deeper than China's. Australian aid 
at least official aid, far outstrips what China provides. But but when you travel in in uh, Solomon Islands and 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 and, and Fiji and so forth, what, what what do you see in terms of the balance of power and influence on the ground? Uh, when you look at Australia, U.S., Japan, New Zealand, France is a player in large parts of the Pacific. How does that look when you're traveling in the region? Thanks, Mike. I'll start by answering the first component and remind me of that last component if I don't get to it. But I think in terms of Australia's history with the Pacific Islands, you're right, it is, uh, it is deep and it goes a long way back. I think the, the greatest shame of the more recent strategies as they're described for engagement with the Pacific Islands that have come from Australia, New Zealand, the US, France, and now Canada, and I believe the UK, uh, are that the perception of Pacific Islanders is, oh, so you're, you're just interested in us because of China. So if you have that kind of narrative, you're losing the influence game right up front. And I think that's a major issue that no one is particularly focused on. And so I'll, I'll come back to what I understand of, of some Pacific Islanders' perceptions in a minute. But in terms of getting engaged in the region, yes, you're, you're right. Australia felt, and particularly the Prime Minister felt, that we weren't sufficiently engaged in kind of the 2017-2018 timeframe. And the result of that was what became known as the step up that actually happened in name after he was gone. But certainly a lot of his ideas went into it. One thing I'd note about that as I was the director for international engagement immediately before that with our army was right across our defence force, we had stepped up our engagement with a lot of places, including the Pacific, several years before this happened. So there'd been a new international engagement strategy that had been hatched that was far more focused on delivering what those countries desired from the relationship. So it is once again unfortunate that now it's seen as just being the step up that caused it. Nevertheless, that's progressed and it's not just defence, it's economic uh, and political as, as much as it is security oriented. And as you say, the New Zealand reset, the US more recent Indo-Pacific strategy and the Friends of the Blue Pacific policy that's come out more recently, French Indo-Pacific strategy, the Canadian Indo-Pacific strategy, they, I think they all provide interest in the Pacific Islands that is of utility to Pacific Islanders. The one issue is that they think it's all about the Chinese and they don't perceive an interest in their own interests. And I think, to come back to the second part of the question, when I've been on the ground in various Pacific Islands, and when I regularly talk to friends in the Pacific Islands, and at, a, at a, an interesting conference on security in the Pacific that I was at a week and a half ago, the views of some quite prominent and incredibly intelligent Pacific Islanders is, hey, we have our own interests. Uh, generally, they say they're not interested in the geopolitical competition that's happening over them. My concern is that they can't not be interested in it because it is going to affect them whether they like it or not. But at the end of the day, from the perspective of what are seen as the external powers, 
I believe all of us should be far more focused on the interests of the Pacific Islands because there is a lot of mutual interest there. I don't think it'd be that hard to explore those and it just needs to be that the Pacific Islanders feel like they are getting something useful out of these various relationships rather than feeling like they are being pushed around and, and the narrative can feed that at times. And uh, I'd have to say on the political statecraft side of, of, of China's actions, it certainly actively feeds that narrative. Pete, just one final question for me and then I'll let Mike have the benediction here. A grade uh, for China on how it's done this year. It it almost feels like after the momentum China had in the spring of, I think, catching the United States off guard for sure. And I'm aware of your last point, and that's lingering over me, that I'm naturally going to fall into a geopolitical Pacific Islands between the US and China question here. But if you'll, you'll humor me, I wanted to get your assessment of how China's done, because it seems like this early geostrategic coup that China had delivered on the United States with the with the leaked security agreement hasn't entirely played out the way China would have hoped now in December of this year. I saw, I think it was just a couple of weeks ago, China tried to hold a, a meeting with Pacific Island nations on policing and security. It was, it was virtual and you had a couple of no-shows. Of course, famously, Wang Yi did a tour in the summer that was lackluster, which is an understatement. So once the United States, I think, realized that the ball was in the back of the rim and that it had to act, it seems like some of the oomph that China had going for it in the spring has, I think, has evaporated. So I just wanted a final question to get your state of play as of December 5th when we're recording where does China stand in terms of where we thought it would be if we were extrapolating from the spring? And has the United States, now that it has engaged and understood the what is at stake here, how is it doing to rebuff some of China's uh, advances? No, that, that's a good question. But with this common development vision draft that was sent out in May prior to Wang Yi's visit to eight Pacific countries, and I'm including Timor-Leste, as China seems to be, as a Pacific country in that statement, it was interesting because I don't think Chinese statecraft ever does things like that without doing its homework. And so the response that China got, I find it hard to believe they didn't expect it. And I just use one phrase that was in a a brilliantly written letter by President David Panuelo from the Federated States of Micronesia when he was critiquing this draft and sharing it with a much broader audience than the 10 that had received it. He used the term smokescreen. And I did wonder as time went on, it looked right up front like it had been kind of, there'd been pushback from across the region and, and to a degree there had been. But also I wonder, China's not used to dealing multilaterally with a region. It's not in its DNA. It works very hard on its bilateral relationships and it has been in the Pacific, let's face it. And it's really trying to develop those security relationships at the moment. And in countries where there's no military, it's doing it with the police force. 
So I did wonder, as Mr Wang Yi did his trip around the region, what the real objective was. And, I mean, it's speculation because we don't know, but I think solidifying some of those direct police-to-police -police relationships was probably a higher priority than this more grand strategic sweep that was, if you look at the words, I mean, it, it was trying to combine political, economic and security mechanisms and integrate the region with China, but only with a certain slice of the region, which was the 10 countries that recognised Beijing rather than Taipei. So it ran into trouble. And that brings me to the pushback element of it. I think it's really important to always consider when we're thinking about the geopolitical competition and about who's doing what to who in various parts of the Pacific, what's actually happening in the Pacific Islands, both at the national level and at the grassroots level, because they can be two completely different things. But at the national levels of the countries that were involved in those discussions with Wang Yi, the main issue that they had was they felt they'd been pressured uh, and they weren't given enough time to decide and that they didn't get the, the chance to consult more broadly with the whole, with all of their brethren in the Pacific Island Forum. Um, the problems that Panuelo added to that or raised was that this could potentially divide the Pacific. If we're basically having some of us in a pact with China and others not, that's really dangerous in itself. And he's completely right. And he, he made some brilliant points in that letter. But I, I think it's important to remember that each of those countries has their own national interests and each of them is pursuing it in a different way. You know, we can talk about regional pushback, but in the end, each one of those countries is, like it or not, pursuing its own grand strategy and it's thinking about its own national interests. And what I saw in the response to that was a number of countries that have gone, hey, China, we want to deal with you economically. That has not changed. Love the Belt and Road. And that's whether it's for the right reasons or the wrong reasons or whatever works for them. But they, I know they want infrastructure and finance. But at the same time saying, don't associate security with this. We, we don't want this to be integrated and we won't accept it. And that seemed to be quite a strong response from several of those islands. And that kind of ties in with a number of attempts at geopolitical influence that have been pushed back in by certain islands over the last five years and some interesting developments that have taken place, whether it's uh, Prime Minister Marape in Papua New Guinea uh, closing the licence on a mine that was almost 50% owned by, by China, a Chinese company, whether it's Fiji saying it doesn't want to support China over the South China Sea, 24 hours after one of its ministers had agreed to it. There is a long list of examples of where this kind of pushback has taken place. So the point I'm trying to make is they, ha they do have their own agency. They are quite used to dealing with external powers. They like to play one off against the other. And that's part of the hedging strategy that's quite often being used in the Pacific. But I think it's important for countries like ours to focus on what they're trying to achieve and what their interests are if we want to have an effect. That, that Pete, is a template we, sh we, the US and Australia, 
should be applying across the whole region. This is not a, as I say again and again on this podcast, this is not a bipolar region defined by what the US and China do with everyone else an object of that competition. It doesn't matter whether it's Australia or Nauru, they, there's agency. And if we're on the side of helping these states protect their sovereignty, protect their choices, we'll be in a strong position. And uh, you've really brought that through in today's discussion. Really looking forward to the dissertation book, speaking tour. You're reminding me of another Pete. A hundred years ago, Colonel Peter, you know who I'm talking about, Pete Ellis, U.S. Marine Corps was gallivanting around the Carolina Islands, warning that the Japanese were building dual-use bases and urging the Marine Corps and the Navy to be ready for it. And of course, he became a transformational thinker on amphibious operations that were used 20 years later in the Solomon Islands by the U.S. Marine Corps Army and Australian New Zealand forces. So yeah, now he ended up not lasting long, <laughs> as you know, I think he died in 1923. Yeah, you're on the verge of a illustrious career defining our grand strategy towards the whole region, which we all look forward to. And thanks for giving us a, a little view of it and a really important one with me and June on the podcast. Thanks so much, Mike. It's been a, an absolute privilege. For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, visit the CSIS website at csis.org and click on the Asia program page. And for more on the U.S. Studies Center in Sydney, please visit ussc.edu.au.